When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply you get to do one big project every five years. So according to my actuarial tables, I've got about 22 years left. That's four big projects. <laughs> don't, don't fritter away your choices around that. And if you're going to, here's a quote from Napoleon, if you're going to take Rome, take Rome. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. I got a lot of positive feedback from last week's episode of Jay Talking with Jay Akunzo, so it's likely that we'll be returning with a little bit of a mini series over the coming months. So thanks to everyone who shared some feedback and thank you to everyone who shared their results of their Spotify wrapped that included creative elements. Spotify tells me that more than a hundred people listen to creative elements more than any other podcast. And that's just listeners who actually use Spotify, which I know from my data is not the majority. So it means a lot to me to think that creative elements is anybody's favorite podcast, let alone hundreds or maybe even over a thousand people. And sharing your Spotify wrapped results with Creative Elements helps the show grow as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who did that and tagged me on Instagram. As a reminder, there is a Creative Elements Instagram account now. If you search for creativeelements.fm or go to the link in the show notes, you can find me on Instagram. I share a little bit about each episode every week, and that's a great place to tag me if you're listening to the show. Back in 2017, I took part in Seth Godin's Alt-MBA program. And as part of enrolling in that four-week cohort-based course, I was mailed a whole bunch of goodies, including several books that Seth himself recommends. The book that stands out to me the most is called The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. The Coaching Habit is written by Michael Bungay Stanier and provides seven questions that encourage deeper listening, lead to better dialogue, and have truly helped me to have more productive conversations with clients and even loved ones. And I'm not alone because that book was a big commercial success. So The Coaching Habit is the book that I'm best known for. It came out 2016, so five years ago, and it sold a million copies and has been this amazing runaway self-published success. So that's been thrilling. But in fact, I had published four books before then. Get Get Unstuck and Get Going, which is, you remember those kids' flip books, Jay, where you have like a ballerina's heads and a soccer player's bodies and a scuba diver's legs? Yes. Well, it brought that structure to coaching. So you'd have a quote and you'd have a story and you'd have something else, and each flip section had a question on it. So you'd bring a challenge to the book and you'd open it randomly at one of the 100,000 combinations and you'd get three questions to provoke you to think differently about whatever your challenge was. And then I self-published a book called Find Your Great Work, which then got picked up by a New York publisher and became Do More Great Work. So how do you do more of the work that has more impact and more meaning? Then I did a partnership with Seth Godin, a book called End Malaria, where we I curated 50 essays around great work. And we all the money, not just the profit, but all the money from the books went to Malaria No More. And we raised 
$400,000 for Malaria No More and the book hit number two on Amazon, you know, out of everything. So that was pretty exciting. And then a, a, a kind of a quote of the day style book as well. So I've dabbled in a bunch of stuff. Michael has certainly dabbled in a bunch of stuff as he just shared with you. He's written several books, but not only that, he's also created a training and development company called Box of Crayons, which has taught coaching skills to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. He's also a Rhodes Scholar. And if you're not familiar with what a Rhodes Scholar is, it's an international postgraduate award for students to study at the University of Oxford. It was established in 1903. It is the oldest graduate scholarship in the world. In fact, it is considered among the most prestigious international scholarship programs in the world, with only 32 Americans receiving the Rhodes Scholarship each year. And today, Michael wraps his creative projects under the umbrella of his website and brand, mbs.works, mbs being his initials. The vision for mbs.works is to help people be a force for change. And I want as best I can to give people tools for themselves so that they can use the tools. And that brings us to today's conversation. Michael has written a new book, which he sent me an advanced copy of, thank you, Michael, called How to Begin, Start Doing Something That Matters. The book is designed to help you find, define, and start what he calls a worthy goal. Hey, it's MBS here. Well, here it is finally, the new book, How to Begin, Start Doing Something That Matters. This is a book that is about claiming ambition for yourself and for the world. It's about unlocking your greatness by doing stuff that matters. And ultimately, practically, it's about giving you a really good process to set worthy goals, goals that are thrilling and important and daunting. The use of the phrase worthy goal is very intentional and very specifically explained inside How to Begin. He says in chapter one, the idea of a worthy goal is less about an abstract moral rating and more about whether it's worthy enough for you to be committing to it. I love this idea because I often find myself overcommitted. There are all kinds of things I could do with my time, and often they seem like a good idea, but what How to Begin helps you to do is really identify whether a good idea is truly one worth dedicating years of your life to. It's a workbook with areas to fill out your ideas, wrestle with them, even score them, It's incredibly unique, and I'm not being hyperbolic when I say it's the most practical book on goal setting that I've ever read. So in this episode, we talk about Michael's career as an author, what makes a worthy goal, how to clear space for your worthy goals, and why striving for simplicity helps you to be more effective. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can tag me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening. And now, let's talk with Michael. Well, the way, way back history is growing up in a house of books and being a reader. So I was, I loved English at high school and I did a a BA in literature and I did a master's degree in literature. So there's something about just being a reader already kind of helps. And my grandmother, her name was Maida Euphemia Kerr, was a writer. She literally wrote a column in her local town's newspaper and she had both adult and children's books out in the world. And I thought that was pretty cool as well. And then very shortly after starting my company, finally leaving, having a job and trying to build my own thing, I went to a a talk by a guy who founded a company called Strategic Coach. His name has temporarily escaped me, but he's all about scale and being successful. 
And he, he said something that was very powerful for me right at the start, Jay. He said, look, there are three phases you go through. And people listening will, will know this, but I love the way how he broke this out. He said, first of all, you say, I'm a dentist. <laughs> and you're identified with the skill that you have. Secondly, you go, I'm an entrepreneur who practices dentistry. So now you need to go, I need to understand what it means to have a business and market and sell and perhaps sell beyond my own capacity. And thirdly, he says, the final phase, the most scalable one is I create intellectual property around dentistry. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and when I, when I start, so that heart happened. Then when I also started, I got, I, I was trying to start my own business because I'd been fired from my job. And I took a sidekick like two or three days a week working for a, a market research company. And they hired me to develop models and structures for stuff. And it turned out that I was good at it. And I was like, oh, that's handy. <laughs> Wait a minute, it's all coming together. You know, that saying inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. I was starting to see my inspiration kind of. So I came up with this idea for this book because I, had, I, I, I got irritated about something around coaching, around how woo-woo and obscure it was. I was like, I think I can teach people how to self-coach. So I had this idea for a book and I, made a, I wrote it out and I made a prototype of it because it's complicated. And then I kind of lost my mojo around it. It's like 2004 or something. I don't know how to publish a book. So I put it away in a drawer, forgot about it. And then my cousin <laughs> called up two years later and went, so I noticed you're not using this idea for your book, which I loved. I thought I would take it because I told my boss about it and she sounded really interested in it. I was like, no, <laughs> wait, exactly. No, wait. <laughs> Um, so that became my first book, Get On Stuck and Get Going. So it was a combination of a little bit of inspiration and a little bit of threat response. And and also my grandfather died, left me $25,000. And my wife kindly said that we could lose that on trying to self-publish this book. So I invested that money in, in putting the book out. We, we made the money back pretty much. And that kind of, that was the first book of, I think it's now seven or maybe eight or something books that I've written. And that book was The Coaching Habit, correct? No, that book was called oh. Get Unstuck and Get Going on the Stuff That Matters. So with those four books before The Coaching mm -hmm. Habit, when did Box of Crayons get started? Yeah, so Box of Crayons got started in 2002. So the very kind of quick history beforehand is um, I'd been working in Boston. I'd moved over with a startup. Uh, it was terrible. <laughs> they didn't like me. I didn't like them. I was struggling. My wife could only do a certain amount of things in the U.S. because she's Canadian. So I, I quit. I got another job up in Toronto. And then 9-11 happened. And so my job up in Toronto vanished. So I arrived going, okay, now what? Got a temporary job. Got fired from that temporary job because I wasn't very good at it. So started Box of Crayons out of necessity. <laughs> going, okay, it, it's clear that both the universe doesn't want me to get hired and I'm almost unhirable now. So I started Box of Crayons and the first book appeared like three years after I'd started Box of Crayons. Okay. I, I heard this story in your conversation with Brene Brown actually mm. about your intended job in Toronto that got lost due to timing with 9-11. Yeah. So yeah. at that point in your life, you weren't necessarily thinking, I'm a dentist who's starting a business. You <laughs> no. were taking a job. So how did you begin to embrace this creative entrepreneurial yeah. side of yourself? Well, I'd had the good luck, Jay, to, in the very first job I had, I started with a small a startup, basically, in the world of new product development. Sometimes when you start a career, you kind of, you spend the first two years being told how to behave. 
being trained to be a corporate citizen. And part of what was lovely about working this first company is we were kind of trained not to be a corporate citizen. They were like, we want you to be different. We want, well, we want you to be a bit weird because that's part of our brand. So that was the first time I felt I had permission to even think about being an entrepreneur myself because it really wouldn't have occurred to me otherwise. And, and so that seed had been just there for maybe four or five years, just going, ah, oh, maybe I should. But, you know, it's scary starting your own thing. And circumstances kind of played my hand for me, which is like, all right, the job I had lined up, my flight out of Boston was on 9-11, so the job disappeared. Then I got fired from the temporary job that they found for me. So I was like, well, I could try and find another job or maybe this is it. Maybe this is the, the chance to, to leap. I went to a state school here in Ohio and even at that state school, you know, the path was middle management Mm -hmm. at a company, at a business school. You went to Oxford as a Rhodes Mm. Scholar. What Mm -hmm. was the culture like there in regards to employment or entrepreneurship? It didn't feel very entrepreneurial. So you had a bunch of American Rhodes Scholars who are the ones who show up with the kind of the biggest badge of I'm a leader of the free world because, you know, a lot of them come, become leaders of the free world. And a lot of them, it seemed like the Rhodes Scholarship was a notch in the belt for a career. Like you get a Rhodes Scholarship, you then go to Yale or Harvard Law School and you do something there and then you move into politics or, or whatever. What happens to a lot of people is they get swept up by McKinsey and the likes, which is like, you know, that's part of the McKinsey brand is we have the smartest people around and Rhodes Scholars are allegedly that. So there was a degree to which some people were definitely headed to academia. Some people were definitely headed to politics and kind of, you know, ruling the world. So for those of people who follow US politics, you know, I was at school with uh, Cory Brooker, the Brooker, the guy who is a Democrat presidential hopeful, the, the, slightly awful guy who was the um, governor of Louisiana, who um, Bobby Jindal. He was, a, he was in my class and there were a couple of other people who were, you know, influential in this world. I'm like, wow, these Wild. are leaders of the free world. But, you know, they, they, were, they were on that path already. Whereas I was at a Rhodes Scholar going, I have no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> I was, I was living, in a, living in a house with 15 other people doing PhDs and actually that made me go, don't think I want to do a PhD because this is the most depressed house in the universe. <laughs> I mean, everybody's in this kind of cesspit of self-loathing and confusion. And it just didn't feel like academia was going to be right for me because I'm just too scatterbrained and I'm just not at that level of smart that some of the people I knew who were going to be great academics were. I, I, I went to an info session at McKinsey and I just went, I don't think that's going to work because <laughs> they're a bit like a law firm and I finished law school being sued by one of my law school lecturers for defamation. So I kind of had already figured out that that kind of professional services career might not be something that I'm going to fit into. So uh, honestly, Jay, it felt like a case of stumbling forward into the, <laughs> into the future, just trying to figure stuff out because I, I kind of sucked a lot of things that didn't, didn't taste right until I finally figured out that to my own surprise and my parents' confusion, being a kind of entrepreneur was... I don't even think of myself as an entrepreneur. It's more like a guy who somehow runs his own businesses or maybe more specifically, a guy who is unemployable and can't have a boss <laughs> other than himself <laughs> is, is the path that I needed to take. After a quick break, Michael and I talk about how he manages a portfolio of creative projects while building his company Box of Crayons at the same time. 
And a little later, we dig out some of the specific steps you can take when evaluating whether or not to begin a new project. So stick around, and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business, and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creator. Welcome back to my conversation with Michael Bungay Stanier. Michael started his training and development company, Box of Crayons, about 18 years ago, and he's been authoring these books all along the way. He's had a lot of success with both of these efforts, so I asked him how he thinks about his creative portfolio and when he prioritizes his own creative projects over the business or vice versa. I... I'm hesitating, Jay, because, because it's such a good question because we both we have these two things pulling us. You know, it's just like, what, do I just follow my passion and do the thing that lights me up? Or am I doing it because it's a, a business call and am I doing it because of that? So I'm feeling my way into this answer. A concept that was helpful for me, I'd heard about some years earlier, was a portfolio career, which is like you don't get everything you want from a single thing. You have to build a portfolio to find to have all your needs answered. So that was already helpful. 
because I could then look and go, look, there's some things I'm going to be doing for the money. <laughs> uh, they may not be the, the thing that I really want to be doing, but it's, it's, they tick enough of the boxes and they pay me enough that it will fund my life and it might fund space and time as well. So that's one type of thing that I'd say yes to. The other type of thing to say yes to is the stuff where I went, I'm not sure this is going to be commercial, but it could be. So all of the books that I've, or the key books that I've written, Do More Great Work, The Coaching Habit, The Advice Trap, with every single one of those, I've gone, I can see a way for making this grow my business, even if nobody buys the book. So, you know, with The Coaching Habit, I mean, it's had this ridiculous success as a book. But, you know, on a business level, I can also point to 11 people who bought the book who have bought Box of Crayons well north of $10 million in revenue combined as a result of wow. that. And there's a way of me going, look, actually, and I kept having to remind myself early on that I'm like, I'm, I'm actually not trying to sell books. I'm trying to get the books in the hands of people who buy what Box of Crayons has to offer. So... With all of those things, there's a, there's a way going, look, this feels like the best expression of what I can do. And I can see how it might be part of a, uh, of a commercial plan. It might work. And then there's a third type of project, which is like, I'm doing this because it's an expression of creativity. And if it, nev if it doesn't make money, that's okay, because it's contributing to self-happiness and probably building a brand in some way. And you, you just got to experiment a bit with a bunch of stuff to figure out whether anything's any good. On the second point there, where you're talking about, well, this book can at least feed the business if it doesn't become, you know, a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. It sounds like you're speaking to kind of like a measured weighing of risk reward here, because you see that there are multiple paths to reward, mm. even if the risk is the time and resources required to create the thing. Yeah, that's uh, it's a really important conversation, Jay, around risk. I, th I think you make better decisions if you've had a chance to weigh up, you know, the prizes and the punishments <laughs> of doing something. And also at the same time, the prizes and punishments of not doing something, because those are your choices to do it or not do it. And there are, are benefits and costs to, to either one of those choices. So you're just trying to go overall, how do, how do things tip? So, you know, with most of the books... I've also got to a point where I'm like, you know what? I'm just damn proud of this book. <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's a really good expression of something that I believe in. And it gives me permission for the book to fail because I'm like, I can sit with this and go, it's a contribution to my body of work. But I'm not actually a high risk person. Like I don't like going out. It's only $100,000 of somebody else's money. I'll just gamble it and see what happens. I can't, I'm not wired for that at all. But I am going, okay, so this book, look, if I just get a thousand copies printed and I commit to the work, which is like knocking on doors and going, you're a person who I'd like to read this book. Can you, can you read the book? I'm like, I'm sure I can make this money back over time. Or if I'm only printing a thousand copies, you know, with the coaching habit as an example, it cost me, let's say $40,000 to get it created as a self-published author who's working in partnership in a kind of hybrid model with a company called Page Two. Plus it cost me another $5,000 to get a, um, a thousand books printed. So now I'm like, okay, so let's round it up. 50 grand this is going to cost plus a bunch of time. <laughs> um, is that worth it? You know, am I willing to lose all of that? And I'm like, yeah, I can afford to lose all of that. 
because I also would back myself to not not losing 100% of 50K. I'd lose some of it, but not 100% of it. So yeah, it's trying to weigh that risk up as part of it for me. At the risk of getting a little too in the weeds, I'm always fascinated to hear how authors budget time for actually writing the book because most authors mm. that I have on the show are doing other things, whether it's a business, the yeah. style of a box of crayons or whether it's other creative projects. And it just fascinates me. Like, how did you write a several hundred page book that has been edited and revised and published? Right. Like, how did you fit that in? So how did, how does that work for you typically? Uh, it goes in waves. So the coaching habit, one of the reasons I, th- I think it succeeded above and beyond the luck of just being the right book at the right time is I spent five years trying to get this published by the New York publisher who published Do More Great Work. And they kept turning it down. So I kept going away and I kept rewriting the book. And having I, I put it in a drawer for a while because they said no for the third time. And I'm like, well, <laughs> screw you. And I was like, put it away. And then I'm like, oh, damn it. It's still, it hasn't, it's calling me back. So I go back and I go, okay, can I reimagine it? Can I rewrite it? Can I try and give them what they're looking for? So it went through waves over five years of writing and rewriting and rewriting. And then when I, <laughs> when they called my bluff, because at one stage with Workman, I went, all right, look, I've, I've got clear again what the vision of this book is. And this is it. I'm not going to do a rewrite. It's like, buy this proposal or not. I don't mind, which of course is code for, I do mind, please buy this proposal. <laughs> and <laughs> they went, okay, no, we're going to pass on that. And I was so taken aback. I mean, honestly, I was a bit shocked because Do More Great Work had been a you know, solid B-list book for them. It sold almost 100,000 copies. So I was like, you know, I can, I can sell some books. I've got a tiny bit of a reputation. And they're like, nope. So I'm like, <laughs> went away, cried a bit in the corner, and then went, right, I'm going to self-publish it. So I came to this agreement with Page Two, this company out in Vancouver, and I now have milestones and deadlines to get this book written. And then I start trying to clear calendars and managing calendars in a more active way. And I typically just try to write in the morning. Sometimes I will have a coach to to just provide accountability for me to write. The first book I wrote, I hired a woman called LA and her only job was to not have me skive off. <laughs> because when you're writing a book, you're like, anything sounds better than writing this book right now. I'm like, I think this office needs a good vacuum. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, like, I hate vacuuming. But I'm like, but you know what? Compared to book writing, I love vacuuming. So um, then it became part of that. So that's also when you, it's really helpful to have other people around you where you can say, take this on. And it's also helpful when you can say, this stuff just doesn't get sorted for a while. I'm trying to do one thing here. So I'm just going to let this burn <laughs> or, yeah. or let it stink up in the corner and just go, man, it's killing me that this isn't fixed, but writing this book is more important than fixing that thing. That's something that I struggle with sometimes with creative projects, especially in the early stages is almost guilt around. It seems like there are more responsible decisions to make for where yeah. to allocate my time on oh, existing yeah. machinery and existing things that are bringing in revenue or supporting other people. I, I feel like guilt when I'm just kind of like hiding away and working on something new that's exciting. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever feel that? Um, no, guilt isn't quite the right word for me, Jay, but it is an anxiety around not keeping things tidy. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not that good at the details. I'm more of a big picture person. 
But at the same time, it like it irks me to <laughs> have stuff that is broken or failing or I just need to say no to. Yeah, I struggle with that a little bit, but I do have um, a wiring that has, it's like once I'm committed to it, I'm committed to it. And I don't, I don't second guess my decisions too often because I've just come to realize that I, you never know. So the best thing to do is take your best guess, commit, go for it for a while, and then at a certain point stop and go, was this a good decision or was this a terrible decision? Well, let's talk about how to begin your newest book, yeah. which you, you sent me an advanced copy. So thank you for that. My and pleasure. I thought I would zip through it and I found myself constantly stopping and doing the exercises. Oh, I love all, that. All thank along you. the way. So what called to you to write this book? Well, I thought I was writing a different book. <laughs> I, I, I started writing a book which I thought was going to be more about change and how change works because I, I wrote about it in the advice trap. And I'm like, I still haven't cracked this. I need to, I really want, I think I'm getting closer to trying to articulate a, 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 an accessible way of people understanding difficult change. So I, I started writing this book gave it to some people to read and my friend Misha emailed me and went, I'm 40 pages into this draft. I have no idea what this stupid book is about. I was like, oh man, that is that is harsh, but it's fair. That's a helpful friend though. It's a, oh, so helpful. I mean, totally helpful. So I kind of picked my way through the rubble of this book, this draft. And there was a phrase that seemed to glitter in the rubble. And the phrase was, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. And two years ago, I stepped away from being the CEO at Box of Crayons and started my own next little company. And Ainsley, who I work with in MBS.Works, you know, she and I have just built a number of systems and structures to keep us focused on the, the important projects. And I'm like, you know, maybe actually there's something about that that this book is turning into. So, you know, it's like so many creative projects, it's like you start doing something, the first thing sucks. And it isn't actually the thing you want to be building anyway. It's something completely different. But when I landed on, on that phrase and trying to, trying to have people be ambitious, not just for themselves, but for the world, you know, holding this, look, I want to do something great for me and I want to make the world a bit better as well. I'm like, that's a, that's a really good legacy that I can, I can try and contribute to. One of the conscious decisions you had to have made while writing this book was to make this a workbook to have mm -hmm. all these exercises all throughout. And I imagine that didn't necessarily come as an easy decision because I could see how that would create friction for the reader yeah. to finish the book. Yeah. So talk to me about that decision. Look, I've come to realize that what I'm good at as a, as a creator, so both as a writer and a designer and a facilitator, is creating simplicity on the other side of complexity. So taking stuff that is otherwise a bit abstract and a bit theoretical and making it feel understandable to thingify it, as somebody once said to it, which is like to give these ideas a, a metaphor or a shape so that people go, oh, I get that. I get what you're talking about with that. And then to show them how this thing, this idea can engage in reality. So it's not just, oh, that sounds really interesting. I wonder how you do that. It's like, actually, I, I want you to feel that you can do this. So all of my books have had a degree of this, Jay, which is like, look, I, d I don't want you to have a, I just don't want you to have the ideas. I want you to have a sense that you can act on this idea. That's really important to me. So I want people to, to shift as part of reading this book. And that's quite difficult to do with a book. I mean, books, 
often are a catalyst for change, but they're often not a sustainable catalyst. So I was just trying to make it a bit more of that. Yeah, it's easy to read a book and get kind of a thrill of, I did it. I completed it. (laughs) I feel smarter. And now I can quote this in conversation. But Mm -hmm. like you're saying, it doesn't necessarily lead to the intrinsic deep work. Like I literally found myself thinking, gosh, I need to just go downstairs and print this off and actually like fill in these blanks. Oh, thanks, Jay. That means a lot. You know, this is, we're recording this before the books come out. So this is really the first conversation I've had with somebody going, I I read the book and I've been working through it and it's been helpful. So it means a lot to to hear it from you. Thank you. Well, step one of this you have as set a worthy goal. And I think a lot of people listening to this, we're we're artists, we're creatives, we get sparks of ideas and we say, that sounds fun. That sounds cool. That seems like a good idea. But I know that I haven't run my ideas through a lens of, is this a worthy goal or is there even a goal to it? Or does it just seem like something that I want to create? So can you introduce this concept of what a worthy goal is? Yeah, of course. And you know, I'm that, I'm that type of person as well. Like I'm actually quite good at half-assed ideas. (laughs) You know, I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. I'll jot it down on a bit of a paper and I'm going to process where I put all my, uh, if I have ideas just to get them out of my head, I'll sketch them on a bit of paper, throw them in my folder down there called the ideas folder. And then basically every couple of months I'll take it out and I'll read through these ideas. They're all, they're either all the same idea because I seem to have just had the same idea over and over again, or they're just not very good ideas. So I think so often we get in our own way when we don't interrogate that initial spark of inspiration and excitement a little more rigorously. So I think there's a couple of ways of interrogating it. One is to make sure that your stool has three sturdy legs. So the three sturdy legs are, is this worthy goal thrilling? Is it important? And is it daunting? So thrilling is the, does it light you up? Do you care about it? Does it speak to who you are, who you want to be in the world, who you're, you know, who you are, where you are and where you, where you want the horizon you want to head to? You know, is it the, is it the thing that you would, sit down with your kids or with some random kid you've kidnapped off the street and go on, let me tell you what I've been doing because I'm proud of it. It's a, you know, kind of that legacy thing. But I don't want your worthy goal just to be, you know, you, you know following your bliss. I, I also want it to be important. I read a, a book a year ago or so by Jacqueline Novogratz called A Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. She started a, basically it's a non-profit venture capitalist fund called Acumen. And the heart of this book And there's a TED talk about this as well. She says, look, it's about asking yourself, have I given more to the world than I've taken? Can we give more to the world than we've taken? I think that's such a great phrase. So important is, you know, is there a why to this work? Does it make the world a little bit better? Are you serving something other than your own ambition? And then the third element is, is daunting. And daunting is, does this help you learn and grow? Does it stretch you? When we come back, we dive deeper into Michael's three-part framework of thrilling, important, and daunting, and how we apply these lenses to the projects that we think about taking on right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, 
but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, welcome back. Before the break, Michael laid out the three criteria for a worthy goal. Thrilling, important, and daunting. Thrilling speaks to the excitement you feel around an idea, whether it really lights you up or not. Important speaks to the broader implications beyond your own sense of satisfaction or gratification. And daunting speaks to the flutter in your stomach that something feels challenging, as if it might stretch you. You know, there's a a business author called Liz Wiseman, best known for a book called Multipliers, although she's got a brand new book out, which is great, called Impact Players, which is about what do those people do who have an outsized impact in the work that they do? Why are they different? What do they do differently than the rest of us? And Liz said, look, daunting for me is I know how to start the project. I just don't know how to finish it. I'm like, oh, that's good. Yeah, because that that really resonates, which is like, there's a lot of things I'm like, I have no idea how this story ends or even how I get across the abyss. I just know that the the first steps of the path are, are visible for me and I can start the journey. So the first question is to, as you, as you look at your worthy goal, first of all, go, look, it's going to be helpful to put it through these three lenses and test it against those three lenses. And it's also helpful to know that your first draft of your goal is probably not the best version of your goal. So playing with it, tightening up, strengthening it, making it so robust so that it has both internal and external motivation to pull you forward. Because I know for me, and I think this is true for others as well, if your goal doesn't have this, when it gets hard, it's easy to walk away from it. And sometimes that's the right thing to do, but so often it's an opportunity lost because you didn't quite figure out the best way to articulate a worthy goal that would help you get through the hard things. I love that. And I think a lot of people listening to this can relate to this. And actually a note that I took under each of those points, the thrilling, important, daunting points is the countermeasure that you noted. You said that thrilling is a countermeasure against a sense of obligation important is a countermeasure against selfishness. Daunting is a countermeasure against the comfort zone. And all three of those things are definitely things that I felt when I'm stalling out on a creative idea. Right. Exactly. 
I think people probably, when they first come up with an idea, they can see how it'll tick one or two of those boxes, but not three of those boxes. And this stuff is hard enough to do, <laughs> even when you've got the worthy goal really clearly defined. The, you know, Everybody listening to this podcast knows the struggle of being a creator and trying to start something new and to see it through. It's really hard. Give yourself the best chance of success by finding a worthy goal that has that rigor to it that just means that you've just got a better chance of maintaining momentum. I like the word you used, interrogate, like interrogating these ideas. Yeah. And if I think about the ideas that I have or the goals that I have, and I hold them up through these lenses of, is this thrilling? Is this important? Is this daunting? I'm curious to know whether you think I should use those lenses right off the bat, or I guess if there's any danger in reverse engineering answers for myself along mm. these lines just to justify doing the project. Well, we constantly face our own slipperiness. <laughs> At least I do. I'm just going to make it up. It's true for everybody else as well. Like I am a, I am slippery and tricksy and, and hard to pin down and self-justifying and all of that sort of stuff, post-rationalizing. So I think, yeah, I think there is a danger that that can happen. You know, in the book, I asked people to go through three drafts of their worthy goal. And at one stage, I asked people to, to just, you know, honestly score your worthy goal out of 21. So out of seven, you know, scale of one to seven, how thrilling is this really for you? I mean, be honest, you're, you're only like talking to yourself here. You don't have to prove anything. How, how important is it on one to seven? How daunting is it one to seven? So people come up with a total somewhere between, I mean, in theory, between three and 21. Normally it's between about 12 and 21 in, in practice. And my take is if this isn't at, a, at least 18 out of 21, it may not yet have the rigor to pull you forward. And what it also does is you go, okay, so look, it's six out of seven for important. It's seven out of seven for daunting. It's four out of seven for thrilling. What would need to be true for this to become more thrilling for me? And that question is a really good one. I'll, I'll say it again. What needs to be true for? And, you know, I got this from uh, a guy called Roger Martin, who's a Toronto guy, great writer as well, a great strategic thinker. And what I love about that question, Jay, is it's not, is this thrilling enough? Yes or no? Because that's not a very interesting question. You just go, I'm imagining into the future. What would need to be true for this to be thrilling? Seven out of seven. And it creates possibilities and it helps you understand what, what, what's there. And it helps you understand really the opportunity, the opportunity cost of committing to something that would make it that thrilling for you. Yeah, I think there's some important self-discovery and excavation here because you're not just saying like, did this hit the target right now? Right. It's, could this hit the target? And yeah. how could it? And yeah. do you yeah. want it to? Right. I think that's exactly right because it is... I'm just speaking for myself here. It's so easy to to make the thing that you came up with sound good <laughs> to yourself. And you are kind of post-justifying it and post-rationalizing it. So by kind of almost separating yourself out from the goal and saying, this is actually not personal. It's not about me. I'm just trying to hold this goal up and see it objectively. You just give it a better chance to just to prod it a bit and go, yeah. I'm up for it. <laughs> this sounds like a thing that I want to invest time and effort and money and reputation and resource into because that's what's about to happen. Let's say that we 
we got a score that's higher than 18 where we've mm-hmm. got a goal that we're really excited about. For me, when I was working through this, I was using the exercise of my goal being turning this podcast into a top 10 careers podcast. That's specific. It gets me excited. It does yeah. feel daunting. Next, you kind of introduce the idea. Why is, of it, why is it important if I can ask? Because it helps so many people. It yeah. encourages so many people to do exactly what we're talking about here, which is to keep going, to yeah. not only get started, but to push through the challenging times and like this slog for the yeah. first couple of years often right. to get in front of enough people for your work to like really take off. And, and let me ask you another question if I can, Jay. How does that connect, if at all, to the, the bigger sense of purpose you have around the work that you do? I love being able to help people find what I call creative independence. A lot of people focus on financial independence and they do that and they achieve it and they think, okay, I guess now I can express myself in the way that I want. Mm -hmm. And I think people can do that before, you know, they've saved 25 X of what their costs are. (laughs) Right. Right. And what I love about hearing you say that Jay, and it's really helpful for people listening is this is part of the interrogating of a goal, which is like, do, do you have something behind the, the goal? The goal is just one brick. You know, it's a significant brick, but it's one brick in the thing that you're building. And so Jay's like, look, I'm committed to enabling creative independence. Really powerful. And here's the thing with Jay, we know he's super talented. He's, you know, he's a triple threat, whatever that means. So the thing that Jay has to weigh up is like, well, of all the things I could do, what's the thing that would be most thrilling, important, and daunting for me to commit the next year to five years to, to really build something? Because you, there's, you have choices. And what I love about what Jay's taking us through is he's like, you know what? This feels like it could be the thing to double down on because it commits to my why, so I've got an important thing and it's thrilling and it's daunting. And what he's also doing in saying that is he's saying, and that means I'm taking some other projects that I could do off the table because I can't do all of them. I'm committing to possibly doing the podcast. The next step here was false starts, which I want to talk about, but for the sake of time, I want to go to the thing that actually hit me even harder, which is the idea of noticing your mosquitoes. Because once I did articulate this goal of making creative elements, a top 10 careers podcast, and I read about noticing your mosquitoes, I thought, oh my gosh, (laughs) if I'm committing to this for the next one to five years, as you're saying, I've got a lot of mosquitoes. So can you talk a little bit about mosquitoes? So the, the, the intellectual debt to this comes from a book called The Immunity to Change by Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy, which has its own debt to, oh, what's his name? A Harvard Harvard guy, uh, Heifetz, Ron Heifetz, Leadership Without Easy Answers. And it's this, when you're tacking on something that is difficult, tricky, hard to do, we so often find ourselves with one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. And it's really annoying. <laughs> but I love this metaphor because you immediately get it. You're like, oh man, what is, what is wrong with me? I am so wanting to make this happen. I am pumping the gas. But if I, if I actually stop and notice, I'm, I, I'm, I'm colluding against myself. What is going on here? And that's what noticing the mosquitoes is about. It just says, almost certainly for something that matters this much, there are things that you are doing and not doing that are contrary to the very goal that you're setting out to do. And it's really helpful to actually look and take an audit (laughs) and just see how you're getting in your own way. And it will surprise you. 
and it will embarrass you. <laughs> and it will kind of, I mean, humiliation is perhaps too strong a word, but I, you know, I, I'd say probably it will shame you in a, in a certain way where you're like, I don't know what's wrong with me. And the good news is there's nothing wrong with you. You're just human. Can you give some examples of common mosquitoes that you see with artists and creatives? Sure. I want my work to be known. I'm not going to let anybody know about my work. <laughs> I want my work to be financially valued. I will systematically undervalue and underprice everything I'm trying to sell. I mean, those are two pretty big, pretty big yeah. ones. <laughs> and I like, I know them because I have had them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What about, what about just competing priorities? That's yeah. something that I really started to realize as I was looking at this of like, okay, so if this is my goal, what are the other mm -hmm. things that I'm doing right now actively as projects even that could have their right. own worthy goal yeah. that I just can't do all of them justice? Well, I think, I'm not sure if there's a mosquito or that that's a, a, you know, a horse fly. Because <laughs> I think, there's, I think there's, a, there's just a big thing that most of us try and take on too many projects and do too many things at the same time. It's, it's, it's a combination of ambition and lack of discipline. <laughs> and anxiety because you're like maybe if I do a whole bunch of things one of these will take off and unfortunately you're not a venture capitalist you don't have an ability to invest across a portfolio of 12 different projects and hope that one or two strike bit you've got to kind of take your best guess and 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 go for it so I think uh, Jay there's just a significant insight this is from the coaching habit book it's called the strategy question the strategic question if you're saying yes to this, what must you say no to? And you've got you to kill some things off. I mean, we've all heard the phrase, kill, kill your darlings or kill your babies or whatever the slightly graphic saying is. But you're like, you just do. You just got to go, I can't do that. Who are you kidding? I mean, I keep failing to learn this myself, Jay. I keep going, maybe, maybe I can do two or three of these. And I'm like, no, you can't. You're an idiot, Michael. You, like, really, you can commit to one worthy goal. That's why you need to think hard about what you commit to. Yeah, two phrases that I think about a lot. One is a friend of mine who just said, you can have as many cats as you want, but you have to feed all of them. <laughs> and another right. person who put it another way was like, I get six kicks of the ball per day. And I can either yeah. kick six different balls one time or I can kick one ball six times. And it right. really illustrates like, wow, you could do so much more yeah. with focus. And, and at another scale, you know, the book openings are talking about Kevin Kelly and about setting your death date because with actuarial tables, you can figure out when you die. And that's helpful for me. But also what's helpful from that article with Kevin Kelly is like you get to do one big project every five years. So according to my actuarial tables, I've got about 22 years left. That's four big projects. You know, <laughs> Don't don't fritter away your choices around that. And if you're going to, here's a quote from Napoleon: If you're going to take Rome, take Rome. So it's like you know, if you're going to, if you've got, if you've done this work to figure it out, do the thing. But that actually requires work and self awareness, and really, that's what this book is trying to get at, which is like, see your choices, see the way you're going to get in your own way, commit fully, and then cross the threshold and, and begin the journey. How do you think about? big projects yourself because there's like a subjective measure of scale here right like is this book a big project or is mbs.works and the change you're trying to create a big project you know how do you think yeah. about that i think about it in two ways i think about it and this is the poem i quote at the very end of the book jave um a poem from rilke the translated title is the man watching 
And the last lines of the poem are, I'll get these slightly wrong, which is embarrassing because I should know them by now. It's like, his goal is not to win. His goal is to be defeated by ever greater things. And I, you know, I'm now in my fifties. I've had some success. I'm like, I don't want to keep winning games. I can know how to win. I want to be defeated by ever greater things. So there's just a, a moral calling to, to, as it says in the, in the poem, to, to wrestle with the angel because the angel doesn't wrestle with everybody. So do something where it's like worth wrestling with the angel for. And then I try and think about scale and trying to make a difference in the world. So for me, the book is not a great work project, but the how to begin business is. So it's like, okay, so how do I build an ecosystem that allows and supports people on an ongoing basis being a force for change and taking on worthy goals? So that's a combination of a book and a program and then uh, a membership site, you know, based on Circle, just like SBI is and the like, which is like, how do we build a community of people doing this work together so they have community and they have momentum and they have encouragement? Because for me, it's a, it works as one of my f- big projects to try and build, you know, a thousand, thousand people working on worthy goals and supporting each other. If I'm listening to this and I'm in the middle of a project or I'm I'm post start, yeah. but I feel like, you know, I'm I'm in this not moving phase that you talked about. <laughs> yeah. How do you encourage that person to decide on their next step? Well, you've got options. So I, I guess it's right. Have a think about some of the options and decide on one. Almost doesn't matter which one. Pick one, though. <laughs> you know, one is go back and, and revisit the project and go, is this the right project? You know, interrogate it. Thrilling, important, and daunting. Do I need to recast it slightly, reframe it, tighten it, loosen it, or do I need to walk away from it? Is there actually something saying here that this is a, a project you've inherited some way and, you know, the, 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 the shadow's fallen and the love is gone? The second option is if you like, if you like, I think this is pretty much the right project. I would say, look, it's it's one of the things that often happens is we think we have to travel alone. So it's like find some people to travel with, <laughs> just get some help, you know. And you can make that formal and hire a coach. You can make it informal and just go, look, I'm calling up these two buds I have, and I'm like, let's just talk once a week to to. Just do nothing but to go, what did you say you were going to do? What did you do? (laughs) What are you celebrating? What did you learn? See you next week. So just create a, a, a group of people who put their hand at the small of your back and just move you forward. And if you're like, yeah, but I hate people. And I'm like, okay, I, I kind of get that. I'm a little bit like that myself, although I, <laughs> I, I really encourage you to get other people to help you out. Just do a burst of work. You know, and there's a thousand different tools to sort of go, how do you do a little bit every day? I find the period of time that's really helped for me is six weeks. Six weeks is long enough to make progress, real progress on something. And it's short enough that if it's been a complete waste of time, it doesn't feel like a huge loss. It's only six weeks. So it has a kind of magical quality. It's like that dress on the internet. It's like some lights, it's blue, and sometimes it's gold. Well, six weeks, it's like... It, the the loss isn't too great, but the benefit could be really an up, up surge. And I'd say, look, give this six good weeks. Work, decide what your capacity for, but do work every day or most days for six weeks, and you'll just be in a different place. And after six weeks, stop and go, where the hell am I now? 
and what does this tell me about this project and about me and what I need to be doing. I've shared this in a previous episode before, but I'm extremely picky about the authors who come on this show. It would be really easy for me to interview any author coming out with any new book and justify it as a creative piece worth diving into. But a lot of other podcasts do that, and I made a promise to myself that this show would be different. Since reading How to Begin, I've adopted the thrilling, important, and daunting framework into my own decision-making about whether or not I take on a new project. And it has, in fact, had a big impact on some projects that I've considered already. I've already started a project and then shut it down because it just wasn't thrilling enough. There are a lot of books out there related to goal setting, and I've read a good number of them. But very sincerely, this book, How to Begin, stands out as a very helpful and practical guide for goal setting and frankly, helping you interrogate whether a project is truly a worthwhile pursuit or not. The book releases on January 11th, but you can pre-order the book now to get some special bonuses. Just visit howtobegin.com, which I've linked to in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Michael, you can visit his website at mbs.works. That is also in the show notes. Thank you to Michael for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.